What if we could reimagine the traditional notion of a high flyer? Hey friends, welcome back. Welcome to the High Flyers podcast, where we do reimagine a high flyer, showcase relatable role models and their journey in work and life, including their sunrise, magic moments, hustle, and much, much more to help you achieve your potential, become your best self, and continue to be 1% better every single day. I'm your host, Vidya Tagawal, and let's get started. A quick message from our brand partner, Minky, with co-founder Josh Reyes, about how they're building the future of decentralized finance. Now you're the founder of Minky. There might be listeners who may not be as familiar with Minky. What is Minky and what, what do you do? Yeah, so Minky, we're, we're a gasless DeFi wallet that makes it really easy for anyone to save it's designed actually like uh, your bank, so it should be something that you can just pick up instinctively um, if you've used a bank app like ComBank or ANZ or maybe like a neobank like Revolut or UpBanking here in Australia. Um, but after this interface, um, we actually give you just direct access to these savings or liquidity protocols within DeFi um, to earn a higher interest rate than your bank. So right now that is about 2 to 3%. Um, yeah, at the time of recording. Um, but last year, that was an average of 8%. And in, in recent times, it's kind of been around 4 to 5. Uh, then you can, yeah, really like interact with DeFi just like you would interact with a bank. So um, you can, yeah, put your money in a savings account um, or into yeah, our savings um, savings pools um, and then just start earning interest. Um, so your money, like in a bank account, would get lent out to borrowers um, who would pay interest to you um, for you yeah, lending your money to them. Welcome to episode 84. I'm joined by the one and only Alan Jones. Learn about Alan's sunrise in Melbourne with parents that were dreamers and witnessing the birth of the internet when his chiropractor dad bought home an early personal computer to teach himself programming. Hear about Alan's two biggest learnings as a journalist, his experiences being the second employee for Yahoo in Australia, and why employee share plans can be a good thing when managed correctly. I asked Alan about how he's nurturing up-and-coming investors and his advice for founders when they speak to investors. And stay tuned until the end as Alan reflects on whether he considers himself successful on the back of my question and how he appeared in the very early days of the 20VC podcast. And I'm excited to share we're working through our schedule for June, July and August on this podcast. So if you're a brand interested in working with us or a guest looking to appear in the show, reach out and let's chat. My email's in the show notes. Now over to Alan, please enjoy. Alan Jones, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Vida. It's great to be here. Maybe we can start with some quick facts, Alan, to set the scene. Uh, where were you born and where do you live now? I was born in Box Hill, Melbourne in 1965, three days after the ending of the boomer generation. So <laughs> I am as about as old as it's possible to be as a member of Generation X. Now I live on, on a fam- famous Manly Beach in, uh, in Sydney's uh, Central Beaches region. Nice part of town. We have some similarities there. I grew up in Melbourne as well. So I grew up not far from Box Hill in Winsona South. Oh, so nice. Quite, quite well. <laughs> Melbourne, good part of town. And, and what was your first job and what do you do now? 
Um, I, I've had a lot of odd jobs over the years. Uh, so li- literally the first one I had was um, picking fruit on, on a fruit farm. Um, I lost that job pretty quickly because I was wearing thongs and uh, and uh, cutting the grass and that's never a good combination. And so um, I, I cut my foot pretty badly and had to give that up. Um, the, the job that I got after that, I guess, was... Uh, my mother um, threatened to kick me out of the house unless I got a job after I finished my, my high school exams. And I didn't think that she was being serious, but she was. And one day literally locked me out of the house until I found a job. So about 6 p.m. that evening as the sun was going down, I finally managed to find a job after spending all day looking for it. And I was a, a kitchen hand in, uh, in in the restaurant in a pub in, in northwestern Sydney. So for about um, five years, I was a dish pig washing dishes in a, in, in a pub. And how would you describe your role now? Uh, not dissimilar to that, you know, still opening and closing the dishwasher. <laughs> uh, look, these, these days um, I'm a, a tech angel investor and, uh, and, and a founder coach. Um, I, I work with, with founders and founding teams in startups and, and high-growth companies on, uh, on product strategy, pricing, marketing, and, and mainly um, the leadership and growth of those teams. The purpose of this show, Alan, is to reimagine a high flyer and recognize some of those people in your life or work that perhaps haven't got the recognition they deserve. Is there someone that comes to mind that, that you feel goes under the radar? Um, yeah, I'd, I'd like to call out um, Cameron Adams, um, one of the original three people at, at, um, at Canva, still there today, um, still kind of Canva's uh, guru and, and spirit warrior. Um, he's he's um, probably the most shy and retiring of, of the Canva founders. And, uh, and he's an extraordinarily gifted um, uh, technologist and also a very deep-thinking human being. Uh, when I first saw him doing his stuff, uh, he had created something that would uh, visualize um, tweets on, on, a, on a back projection um, at a stage at a conference. Um, so if, if you were at a conference that had a hashtag, this was very early in the days of Twitter, if you had a conference with a hashtag, um, he could set it up so that tweets with that hashtag would appear on the screen behind the speaker as, as the talk was going on. And uh, I guess that must have been about 2008, 2009, 2010. And, uh, and that, was, um, that was bleeding edge technology at the time, um, but it was nothing compared to the technical challenges involved in, 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 in creating Canva, you know, which was, in five words or less, it was basically Adobe Photoshop in the in the web browser, and web browsers were were very primitive things back then. And and uh, taking on that challenge, building the, the first few versions of Canva was was an incredible achievement. He's one of Australia's most talented technologists. I have heard Mel talk about the story about how they hired Cam from the US, and how that technical co-founder story was quite challenging. So Cam, if you're listening to this, love to discuss having you on the show. Love to zoom out, Alan, and talk about your sunrise, your childhood, and, and the influences that come to mind, particularly around the influence of family and the environment. You mentioned growing up in Melbourne, and I've heard on a few podcasts you've talked about the fact that your dad was a chiropractor, if I'm correct. What are your memories of the of that environment of Box Hill and and family? Yeah, I really have very few memories of of of, um, of growing up at Box Hill because we didn't stay there very long. Um, I, I, I think my earliest memory is is of lying in a, a bassinet in the backyard with my mum's hanging up the washing, and uh, and I think I remember being afraid of the of the steam train, the passenger train that used to go past on the train line um, behind our house. Mm. Again, that's how old I am. Um, but but we left when I, I think when I was about two, when when one of my brothers was born, and um, before I left home at seventeen. 
we'd lived in in 28 houses and, and one boat and, and a few different countries and I think that's that's mainly because my parents um, have have um, a, a really great relationship when the two of them have a big project um, that they're working on together and uh, and um, a lot of those big projects have been big career changes I think my, my dad was um, an entrepreneur without really being conscious of, of what that was or, or how important that was uh, when he was young. He grew up in, in post-World War II Britain, came out to Australia when he was, when he was 21, 22. And, um, you know, in, in England at the time, there was really no such thing as entrepreneurship. There was a class system. There was a, a, an economy that had been ruined by the war. And, uh, and, you know, you were grateful to have work and, and you put your head down and you did your job. You didn't dream about what might be possible. I think, I think my dad and, and, and my mum have both always been dreamers. And that's something that I picked up from them along the way. Um, because going to several different schools, I would always try and sit up the back of the class and um, stare out the window so that I could uh, dream like, like my, my father and mother dreamed. Um, so I, m my memories of school are mostly being, you know, my having my attention abruptly snap back to, to what the teacher was talking about by her or he um, shouting at me or coming up behind me and clipping me over the ear because I'd just completely tuned out to, to what we were being taught. Um, and I do remember at, at a family picnic or a barbecue once, um, uh, I was curious about what my uncles did. Um, no aunties did anything except, you know, they were, they were mothers and, and house, um, housemakers back then. Um, but, um, I remember asking about what my uncles did and, and when we got to my uncle George, I said, you know, and, and what does my uncle George do dad? And, and my dad said, your uncle George is an entrepreneur son. And that was the first time I'd, I'd heard that word, and I said, "No, that, something like that's a, that's a big word. What does that mean?" And and he said, "It means your uncle George hasn't got a proper job." <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's how little my dad, you know, valued the concept of entrepreneurship at the time. But but he was one. He changed careers several times um, during his career, and and even as a chiropractor, where he spent most of his career, he was always looking for for new ways to to change that up, to involve new technologies, to open a new practice in another town, um, to, to teach chiropractic, um, to get involved in the professional association. So he's, he's a restless soul. My, my mother's a restless soul, and, and I guess I've grown up a restless soul too. And what did your mother do? Uh, my mother, um, like most women of her generation, you know, finished school um, uh, before matriculation, ended up as a, as a lab assistant. Um, and then she went back later on when her kids were older. She, she finished high school, um, studied university. Um, she ended up as, as a director of a local community healthcare service and then ended up um, as, as chair of the board of a, of a regional of an area health service in New South Wales. Um, so she ended up having, having quite a career of, of her own. Um, and she's also quite a skilled uh, potter. So um, some of my... Um, my childhood memories are, are um, you know, selling uh, um, food and drinks at, at art galleries where my mum was exhibiting her, her pottery uh, because those days in, in school holidays, you just went wherever your parents were. <laughs> no, super cool. And and if we think of your, your schooling days, you mentioned earlier you were a dreamer. What was success to you? Like if you think, if we, if we fast forward a bit to the age of 16 or 18 when you've got some understanding of the world and then you're maturing as a person, did you have a sense of success and, and fulfillment in life? Like you mentioned that entrepreneurship, dreaming, 
your parents, was that a path back then, like going into the tech world and entrepreneurship? I, I thought I had a very fuzzy idea about, um, about going to journalism because I, w- I was getting pretty good marks in English at school. And, and my parents read the paper and were very involved in, in politics and, uh, and, and journalism seemed to be a, a, a good way to get involved in that. Um, but then when I went and did some work experience um, at, at Fairfax newspapers in Sydney, uh, I, I didn't really enjoy that experience. It was still very much a, um, a, a very old-fashioned sort of organisation and culture. So that turned me off. But my dad bought a, um, an early personal computer, a thing called an Osborne, and, uh, and uh, my dad was, was using that to teach himself uh, basic database programming so he could write a, a patient management system, a, a clinical record thing for, for his, his practices. And um, I got curious about that and started noodling around with that. And I tried programming, was was pretty terrible at it. Um, but the thing that I that I really enjoyed was interacting with other people on on um, bulletin board services, sort of proto um, um, chat uh, rooms, I guess, on, on on what would eventually become the internet. Uh, and I remember because I could express myself um, more clearly in writing than I could. In speech, um, I noticed how you know I was interacting with with grown ups all around the world, and and it wasn't you know nobody cared that I was only sixteen. Nobody knew that I was only sixteen, so it was a, it was an early entry for me into the adult world to have adult discussions with with other adults, and and that that really really worked for me. Um, and I remember noticing how things would spread like memes through those those early community chat boards, and I started to study. You know what makes something so compelling that it gets shared from from person to person and goes all the way around the world. And in those days, it would take you know a week or more to to travel around the world and get picked up everywhere. But but it would still happen. Um, but I was such a dreamer at school that um, you know I had had no idea. And, and coming up towards the end of high school, um, you you um, had to decide what to do and, and apply for a university. And and I remember. Um, thinking, well, I'll just uh, I'll, I'll just be a chiropractor too. You know, my 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 dad's a good bloke. I really love him. Um, it, I I could enjoy working with him. I'll just go and um, study chiropractic and and then uh, work with my dad and maybe one day inherit his practice. That's how low my my uh, ambitions were. But I was such a dreamer that um, when I put in the university applications, um, I just kind of flicked through the the handbook of all the different choices. And uh, ended up putting as, as my first choice um, something called, uh, I think it was called medical technology at, at UTS in Sydney. And uh, that was actually a degree for, to prepare people to go and work as, as uh, lab technicians, which is what both my parents had done when they first left school. And it was definitely not anything that was going to prepare me for a career in chiropractic. So I actually had to then um, try and get a second round offer for, for the correct kind of degree. So. Even when it came to applying for university to study what I thought I wanted to do, I, I still didn't have my full attention on it and, and, and managed to stuff it up. I'm fascinated by your point about being a journalist and particularly being a journalist at the advent of the internet. And I've had a few guests in the past that have had a similar path. The one that comes to mind is Nick Crocker, who works at Blackbird, who was also a tech journalist and also a music journalist. Mm. And, and through my work now with the podcast, I'm building a media platform as well. Mm. What, what do you think in reflection were like two of your biggest learnings from that point, from that time being a journalist that helps you today? And the reason I ask that is because I think today you mentioned earlier about your interest in writing over verbal talking. And, and I think writing today, particularly in the tech world, has become really important because people have realized 
charisma is not always the best indicator of intelligence. You have to put put pen to paper and and show your thoughts in a in a in a comprehensive form. Mm. But in 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 hindsight, if you think of where you are now and even your time at Yahoo, what, what do you think were the learnings? Two or three learnings from that journalism experience that that really set you up for success. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, obviously I've got much more charisma than intelligence. But <laughs> um, well, I, I think it's a really, really um, powerful strategy to um, when you're establishing yourself um, to to spend some time working on your own brand recognition and, and, and your own awareness out there and your own reputation. And, and I think any opportunity you, you, you can find to bring a bunch of people together, whether it's to read something that you've written or to listen to a podcast episode that you've recorded or to um, uh, speak at an event or, or even just facilitate or, or host an event. Um, some of that some of that rubs off, you know. If, if, if you pull together at your local co-working space a panel on a Friday night and, and, and manage to persuade three experts in the field to come along and talk and, and you host and facilitate that panel discussion, some of that rubs off on you. Some of that authority rubs off on you. And when you've been doing that for for two or three years, you start to 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 be considered by people as as uh, as someone who has some some um, uh, value in that area, someone who has some expertise, um, someone whose opinion can be trusted. Partly that's just because of of the power of brands. And and once you've got a brand for a thing, that that helps lift you up. But but the other part of it is is if you're tasked with interviewing somebody or tasked with writing 750 words about something or or tasked with facilitating a panel with people who do know about the, the subject, you can't help but learn that stuff because you have to engage with it. You know, so so you can make yourself an expert by interviewing other people who are. And I think that's that's one of the earliest lessons I learned in, in journalism. Like I was just in my early twenties with no previous background in the technology industry, but we didn't have the internet back then. And so the only way to learn about what was happening in the technology industry was was to read um, something that somebody had written about it. There were no television shows or radio shows about technology um, in, in the mid nineteen nineties. There was really just computer expos that might happen once a year, and, and computer magazines and and, and columns in, in the newspaper. So the people who, who wrote those were incredibly influential because although it was very early in the technology industry, businesses still needed to buy computers and printers and networking hardware and that kind of thing. And and the way you found out about what to buy and what was happening in those big technology companies was was to read what, what journalists wrote. So I, I was learning as fast as I could because I had to stay ahead of my audience. You know what? And I had to appear credible to the people I was interviewing. So the whole time I spent as a technology journalist, I was learning as fast as I could. Um, the, the awesome thing about that is, is, is for most technology companies early in their life, they absolutely love it when somebody takes an active interest. You know? You're spending all of your time trying to convert skeptical, disinterested, um, openly hostile customers to, you know, to buy your product or service from you. That when someone like a journalist comes along and actually seems to be really interested in what you're doing, you just you give it all up. You, know? you make this person a friend and you bring them into your home and you know, you teach them everything that you've thought about along the way. So it's uh, um, reporting on an industry is a really great way to get to know the people in it. And, and if you're a responsible reporter to, to really learn um, a lot about what it's like to be in that position. And I guess that's how I fell in love with, with the technology industry itself was, was reporting on it. I had no intention to, to work in technology when I started writing as a reporter. 
but just fell in love with the culture and I just felt closer to who I was as a person than than the media companies that I was working for at the time. So um, as soon as I could, I, I, I tried to make the switch. Fortunately for me, the the, the the online media startups that were kind of the the basis of the first wave of, of, of the dot-com boom were um, basically, you know, media publishing companies. Um, they just published what they did on, on a web page instead of in print. So you'd pull together some some um, copy and some photos and maybe some illustrations, slap it on a web page and chuck an ad on it. And, and I knew how to do all that in print. So um, making the switch from 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 journalism to, to tech in those days was 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 pretty easy. So I made the leap as, as soon as I could, and uh, and ended up at working at Microsoft for it for for a while, um, and then uh, joined you know what I felt was a more true uh, tech startup at the time, and, and that was Yahoo, which at that time was still a very very early stage tech company. I want to go into magic moments, Alan, because this is probably the part where we can double click on some of those points you mentioned, but also talk about more about your learnings and experiences, whether it's Yahoo, but also angel investing. But the first one I always love asking is painful learnings, because I think listeners, particularly of any facet, look at people like yourself and probably go, okay, Alan's had success all the way. But as I've learned doing over 80 episodes now, there's a lot of knocks along the way. And, and I'm sure you've learned a lot through that journey. Is there a painful learning that stands out for you, whether it's in work or life, that was really hard in the moment, but a great experience in hindsight? One that comes to mind, uh, I was marketing manager for a brief time for a startup. And uh, there was a reason why we had to get stuff out um, uh, in print. Um, so you know, we we're sending out some swag and, and we had to do... Uh, mail all of this stuff out um, and I was obsessed about what should go in the box you know so we were we were gifting some some uh, a large number like 1500 really high value people um, and so I was curating everything that would go in this box and I wanted it to be absolutely perfect and special and I thought a lot about the wrapping and the stuffing and how to arrange it all so it would be fine in the box um, and uh, probably the total budget for this thing was it was maybe forty fifty thousand dollars and uh, I probably spent about 35 of that on, on the contents of the box and the box itself. And it was just perfect. It was all ready to go. Um, and then I realized that I hadn't priced in the cost of shipping. And so I had you know, maybe like a few thousand units to send out to people. And some of them were overseas, let's say maybe about a third of them. Um, and so I, I had a budget of, of maybe $50,000 and ended up overspending my budget like two or three times because I'd obsessed about the content of the box and I'd forgotten about the cost of shipping it to people. Um, one of the things that I learned from that and, and a few other experiences along the way um, is that physical things are really hard. Uh, so when you look at my angel investing uh, background, I've invested in vastly more software-based startups than hardware startups. Um, and, and that is primarily because, you know, physical things are really, really hard. When, when uh, my 20-year-old son was... Was, was a baby I noticed that was having trouble hanging on to um, uh, he, he, he was bottle fed for a while and, and he had trouble hanging on to the baby's bottle and I thought it would be really fun if baby bottles came with a stubby holder you know like a beer stubby holder that fit a baby's bottle so the baby could, could grip it better um, and uh, and I, I came up with this this fantastic plan designs copy a website the whole thing and uh, and uh, commission, I, the minimum number of units I could, I could get made was was ten thousand, um, and uh, and then the, the the delivery arrived one day, and it, and it was a pallet load. It was like two and a half meters by two and a half meters by two and a half meter 
cube of of, of shrink wrapped boxes all, all stuck together, and I literally had to uh, um, leave it on, on on my front yard um, for about a week until I could arrange to get some self storage um, at, a, at a nearby self storage place, and then get another truck to pick up the pallet and take it over to the self storage. You know, physical things take up space; um, they they get old. Um, I still have one of those things um, in my memory box, um, the little the little uh, baby's bottle with a stubby holder on it. Um, but I end up taking you know, most of them, unfortunately, to to recycling in the end, um, because the again the logistics let me down. Um, it was very difficult to to get these products into the baby product stores around the country at an affordable price, and uh, and the whole thing was was a bit of a failure. So. Um, I, since then, I've learned how and where and when to invest in in, um, in startups selling uh, physical products and, and hardware. I've gotten better at it over time, um, but but those two massive mistakes have, have really taught me that you know software is amazing. You can hide it in something as small as a stick of gum, and uh, and build a billion dollar business out of it. You know you don't have to keep it in the warehouse, and that is a huge advantage. Yeah, I must say from my experience across FMCG and retail, I'm not quite sure if I agree with that. Agree with that statement. I think there's a certain impact you can have with physical products, but but absolutely, there's I think pros and cons to each. You mentioned earlier, <clears throat> I learned about being the being an early employee at Yahoo, and I understand you were the second employee at Yahoo in Australia. And there's a lot of conversation today about ESOP and employee employee incentives, and as Australia gets more mature as a, as a startup ecosystem that's becoming increasingly prevalent. Can you talk to your experience early on with Yahoo in those early days? And clearly that's paid off well for you because now you're investing in a number of startups, but were there any learnings there from an ESOP perspective and how you set up your agreement or, or any maybe painful learnings you have there as well in hindsight that if there's a listener who's an operator and a startup, or considering joining a startup should be aware of? Yeah, I think the majority of people um, coming into the Australian tech startup community are coming from other industries and, and other career paths still, you know, and that'll probably be um, the case maybe for another five or 10 years. You know, we're still not at, at the point where um, the industry is in, in, in the US where where majority of people coming into the startup industry and picking up those entry-level jobs have been planning to work in startups since they were in high school. It's still not really the case in Australia. And so when people make the switch from, um, say, FMCG in, into startups, there are a few things that they undervalue and, and misunderstand. And one of those, you know, very much is, is employee share ownership. Giving employees um, an equity stake in, in the business um, is a hugely powerful tool for a bunch of different reasons you know, obviously it, it cuts the, um, the 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 salary budget cost of of the startup at a time when 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 money is really hard to find um and potentially it can really align the the the, the motivations of the employee and the employer really really well but it's also um, a very difficult tool to to manage correctly um because um, people are almost always the the founders of the business and the employees are almost always dramatically undervaluing or dramatically overvaluing the future potential worth of of, of that stock, um, and that's that's a very hard thing to to, to get right. I mean, I, um, it can really distort uh, people's behavior and their attitudes towards the company. Uh, so you can have um, uh, a, a startup where 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 um, salaries are, are openly exposed you know we're a company where, where everybody's salary is published 
um, and then still be dramatically misleading the team if you're not also um, publishing exactly who owns what stock options and, and what the vesting price is and, and how far vested they are and, and you know, all of that additional information. Um, if, if you go from keeping that information private to starting to make that information public all of a sudden, um, you can sometimes see these very dramatic shifts in, in, in how people are perceived in terms of you know what they're getting as a reward um, versus what they feel like they're putting in. Um, I, I remember my own experience at Yahoo, um, but I negotiated um, and accepted a role over the phone, basically, with with um, with HR person at Yahoo in the US, and we agreed on on a certain number of, of um, stock options and, and, and a strike price. And uh, um, from that that phone conversation to when their paperwork actually arrived by courier from the US, there was there was a period of about a week, and in the intervening week. Yahoo had um, done a two-for-one stock split. So everybody held one share, now mm-hmm. held two shares. Um, and, and the price, let's say, went, was at $100. It went, it halved down to 50 But because this was the beginnings of the dot-com boom and everything was taking off, within that same week, the stock price had come back up to 100 again. So the, the valuation of, of, of Yahoo had, had, had doubled. Um, and, and so I hadn't yet started work at Yahoo. I wasn't due to start at Yahoo until the end of that month. Um, well, the beginning of the next month, um, my paperwork hadn't yet arrived, and I was in this position where what you know, I could be potentially holding twice as many stock options or, or twice the value of stock options. Um, and so, until the paperwork arrived, I was thinking, you know, which is it? Which is it? What I'm what I'm going to have? So, um, before it even started, before it even contributed any value to the company, I was I was already starting to spend way too much thinking about what my total net worth might be when you know in, in a year's time when my first stock options vested. Um, what you know, what I actually just fished it out. I was moving some stuff around in my. Um, memories box the other day and, and I um, managed to find the uh, printed statement that I, I went down to the to the bank branch when my first tranche of um, 20% of my stock options had vested um, and the funds had cleared and landed in my little check account um, and, and the, the average balance of that checking account which was my only bank account at the time was about $4,000 um, and, uh, and, and I printed out the statement and got it um, uh, laminated uh, because my my account balance went from from four thousand dollars to one million twenty thousand and four thousand <laughs> one million twenty four thousand um, dollars and and the bank teller and I had you know sort of a double take moment um, so that's an amazing reward for for working in a company for only twelve months but it's a dramatically um, life changing event at the same time and it can be very very hard to get people's attention back on the business and working hard on the tools when they just realised. You know, at that moment in time, they have enough money to go and buy a house for cash. I'm remembering this was Sydney in 1998, so you could buy a house for cash for a million dollars. Um, so you've got to be really, really careful about how you structure it, and you've got to make sure that, that everybody's in the loop without spending too much time thinking about what their share of the company might be worth in, in the future. The, I think the worst thing that you can do is is have a company culture where the strategic decisions the company makes uh, are predicated on well, what effect might this have on the company's valuation? You know, so who are we going to partner with? What what market segments are we going to go into? What sort of customers? Um, what sort of people are we hiring? If all of that is predicated on the future valuation of the business, um, you're optimizing for the wrong things. You've 
got to always come back to, you know, we need to be optimizing for what's the most valuable problem we can solve for the customer that we know better than anybody else. And then what's the right way to solve that problem for them. And then what's the best way for us to make money doing that. And then how do we go and find more customers like that? That's all that matters. That's all that startups needs to be about, you know, the, the valuation and the stock price and what everybody walks home with at the end of the day is, is, is a huge benefit, but it's a, but it's a, it's a side effect of what we do. It's, it's not why we should be going into this. Absolutely. It's the same as probably starting a, starting a startup, right? As a founder, you don't do it for an exit. You do it because you actually, it's your life's work and you want to build it out. On, on that same point, if you go to the next step, you, you mentioned earlier that you've been involved in this space for a long time and listeners would see on your LinkedIn, you were involved with Startmate and you were an LP in Blackbird in the very early days in the early 2010s. Today, you're seeing the world of VC and angel investing becoming a sexy, attractive world where every man and his dog essentially on LinkedIn and Twitter now is an angel investor in their bio. <laughs> and, and and often you see some of them have substance to show for it, where some is there isn't quite any substance there, but they want that signaling effect. How do you see your role of nurturing up and coming investors in Australia? Is that something you think about? And is that something you think is important for the ecosystem? I do think it's 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 really important, and and what I'm most interested in is in encouraging people who already have something of a startup career to start learning about how to angel invest in in the next generation, because that's another thing that that we can learn from um, Silicon Valley was. Um, you know, Silicon Valley's initial kickoff was, was government funding. You know, government funding kicked off, you know, in the space race, it kicked off what became Silicon Valley. But um, pretty early on, it was the um, outsized returns of, of, of the people being successful in the early chip generation of technology companies in Silicon Valley that really started the power, started the flywheel effect that has driven Silicon Valley to what it's become. Um, I, I think it's, it's very normal and natural and understanding understandable for uh, people who've who've been successful in, in the in their first few years of startup career to start thinking about well you know I've been drawing um, um, a pretty crappy salary now um, and, and I set aside uh, a great career in, in finance or telecommunications or travel to to uh, to enter the startup industry so now it's time for me to take some money off the table and, and invest in in my quality of life. And for most Australians, you know, Australia does have this this cultural heritage of being a nation of homeowners, um, and home ownership is really really expensive and unaffordable for unaffordable for for nearly anybody who who doesn't have a wealthy parents or who hasn't just cashed out of a successful tech startup job. Um, so I completely understand the the impulse to go, okay, you know, now we're going to start a family, and now we're going to buy our first home, and and now we're going to take our first luxury overseas holiday. But when you're done doing that, I think it's it's really important. Excuse me to come back and and, and think about one of the things I'm going to do next is I'm going to invest in the next generation of tech startup founders. So, for for you know every one of me, there are another twenty um, like me starting off and beginning of their journey, and I'm going to be part of of, of helping uh, make that happen. For, for me, angel investing started out as as some sort of way to. Um, uh, get some 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 financial return from the coffees that I was having with founders you know so so I was already trying to help another generation of, of tech startup founder when I left Yahoo just by sitting down having coffees with people but there's only so many coffees I can have in a day um, you know without killing over from a heart attack 
Um, and so none of these startup founders could afford to, to pay me for my time. So um, investing in some of them seemed, seemed like a, a, um, the, the next best thing. Um, so I think, you know, we owe it all to the startup community that, that creates us when we have some success to, to give some time back. Um, and then angel investing just seems to be a, a really smart strategic way to, to get some long-term return from, from doing that. Um, I had to learn a lot about how to do it. Um, I'm very, very bad at maths and, uh, and, uh, being able to do valuation math in, in your head when you're having a conversation with somebody is a, is a really valuable skill. Um, but, uh, you know, 10, 15 years in, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit better than I was when I, when I first started. Um, I, I'm participating in the, in the air tree explorers program right now, which is like start my first believers. Mm -hmm. And, and, um, it's, it's really inspiring to see that the majority of, of the cohort in that program are, are people who've been operators in startups and uh, now they've got their head above water and they're, they're not worried that they're going to lose everything. Um, and, uh, you know, they've, they've, they've bought that, that first place and they've started a family and now they're starting to think about, well, how do I give back? And one of the ways I might be able to give back is uh, angel investing in, in, in the next generation of, of startup founders. Just like employee equity aligns everybody's interests in, in, in getting behind the growing the value of the business, um, I think being an angel investor aligns everybody's interest as well. If you're going to mentor somebody, um, if, you, if you own a little stake in the company that, that you're mentoring, um, you're going to give better quality advice and, and you're going to try a little bit harder to help them. If we flip this conversation and, and make it that I'm the founder reaching out to you as a as a mentor or advisor and going, hey, Alan, I've got this startup. I'm looking to raise a pre-seed round. This is my valuation. How would you advise me to go about conversations with investors and constructing my cap table? Like, What are some of the three or four key things I should consider, particularly because you point earlier about as a founder, my priority is building the startup, talking to customers hiring a team, whereas I've got this added job of also fundraising and I need that capital to help me achieve my vision. And I'm coming to you as an advisor because I know you work with a lot of early stage founders, either pre-revenue or pre-idea as well. What, what are some of the things you advise them to do when it comes to working with investors and capital raising? Sure. Um, so first, the, the vast majority of, of um startups that that pitch me and other angel investors are, are cold pitching us um so the first time we've ever heard of them is is, is when they ping us on email or, or, or linkedin or, or a twitter direct message and uh and so if if you're one of the many companies i've never heard of um until i receive your cold pitch um you, you're just in you're in there like the the lowest value bucket of of people you're in there with the people who, who are trying to pitch me a, a um a perpetual motion machine um, or, uh, you know, some, something that's inspired by Nikola Tesla's, you know, coil stuff or something <laughs> that's going to power the world. Um, cause you, you get a couple of those every year. Um, and, uh, and, and you never want to be in anybody's lowest value inbox. You know, you, you always want to be a little bit higher as, as higher as, as you can be. So that you get a little bit more attention, a little bit more focus. And one of the ways to do that is, um, is to ensure that, that there's a possibility that I might've heard of you somewhere before you know so um uh looking for opportunities to to pitch at, at public pitch nights or maintaining a, a sub stack um or a mailchimp database that i might have already subscribed to um taking opinion on some of the issues in the startup sector that you focus on 
so I can start to think of you as, as, as you know, more of a 3D person rather than somebody that just needs to raise half a million dollars um, to, to, to stay alive for another 12 months. Um, you know, needing, needing $2 million to, to stay alive for another 12 to 18 months is um, the least inspiring of all um, investor pitches. That's, that's the worst way to come at it, you know. We've, we've gotten a business to up to this point, but we can go no further until you give us a bunch of money. Um, it's, it's just, you know, very few investors are, are going to be interested in that approach. I think you've got to change your mindset. That, that, that may be literally true on, on the inside, um, but on the outside, what you project to investors is we're going to keep moving forward anyway. We're going to, you know, make the following progress Um but but the investors' capital can help us accelerate this progress, or the investors' capital can help us um, continue this this progress in in our domestic market, but also launch in the following geog- three geographies outside of of Australia. Um, so uh, investors don't like to feel like we're co- keeping our company alive. We like to feel like we're we're helping the the company grow faster, or or, or into new markets, or into new product segments. Um, you know the the best time to to raise money is is when you when you don't really need it. Um, so mm. raising money to hire your first technical co-founder um, is, is is a tough sell. Um, you know because you ought to be able to try and find that person already and have that person contributing to the code base and leading um, the the development team already because they're inspired by the vision and 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 the fact that that you know none of you are really drawing very much of a salary and. Um, if there's a technical co-founder that needs to be paid what they were getting paid at, at Combank before they uh, come over and join your startup, then that's probably not good um, value alignment. You know, that's probably not a good sign that that's somebody that's going to stick with the startup through the hard times. So trying to work on raising the money when you don't really need the money is, 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 is a good discipline. Um, and, um, investors are, are really good at seeing through the um, ask for advice and you'll get money um, story. You know, you, probably heard that before you know people will say ask for investment and you won't get it ask for advice and you might get money in my experience it's not usually true investors can usually see that actually you know this is really about this is really about the money um because there's there's Mm -hmm. there's something urgent there's something necessary um about the tone of voice and 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 the way those approaches come through um we usually know when, when when you're looking for money and perhaps um, advice would, would would be all we'd give you, whether you're asking for for money or advice. So I would just say, you know, if you're raising capital, just tell us you're raising capital. Um, good relationships are, are built on trust and, and honesty. So you know, I would like to know what's what's going on for sure um, from from the get go. I, I don't really want to play mind games and figure that out for myself. Really good point. I want to bring the conversation back to you, Alan, because I am I am conscious of time and I've got so many questions I want to ask, but I'm gonna keep my keep my questions pointed so we can we can finish in time because I know you've got a meeting after this. I wanna I wanna ask about you talked earlier about being in the startup ecosystem from the early days. And if someone looks at your Twitter profile, your LinkedIn, you've got a lot of touch points and a lot of people have heard of you or worked with you. I'm curious about the people you've learned from the most. Like if you had to visualize you're in a learning room and you could pick five people, whether they are startup founders, operators, or investors in Australia that you've learned from the most in the last five years, who would be the five people that come to mind? Well, I think probably um, one of the reasons why I invest in startups is is I love to learn from each of the the startups and and the founders of them um, along the way, right? So, 
you sometimes get the the biggest insights from from people with with almost zero track record you know and and um and i guess you know really the reason for that is is, is often those insights are, are based on um, hands-on research in the field with customers um discovering problems that nobody knew existed until now um and and for me some of the most inspiring parts of of startups pitching me is is when they're able to teach me something about the world that i thought that i understood um and then apparently i don't understand because the startups discovered something you know really key and really critical um that that is kind of underpinning um the 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 future of, of what they want to achieve um I don't think I made very much sense there. I'll try and find a, a concrete example. So there's a there's a startup silo, uh, PSYLO, that that went through the Startmate program, and um, and and they're working on developing um, uh, new uh, therapeutic medicines um, for for treating anxiety and depression that are inspired by based on the active ingredients in psilocybin mushrooms. And uh, uh, when the when the when I first met the the team at Silo, I imagined that that this company would be um, a, a big laboratory full of people in white coats with pipettes and, and beakers, you know, doing lots of <laughs> tests. And and what I hadn't fully appreciated, what I didn't learn until I learned it from them, really was was how far um, um, uh, drugs and, and and chemicals can be designed in software these days um, and, and tested out on on, on computers. So the, the team at, at Silo have, have come up with you know more than a thousand um, uh, what they call NCEs, novel chemical entities um, that that go off to get tested in other people's um, labs full of people in, in, in white lab coats. Um, and so most of the people that are working at Silo are are, um, are what they call uh, computational chemists, but I, I would I would consider to be software developers. Um, the software they're developing uh, is is organic molecules, um, and you know hallucinogenics which are going to be safe and and well understood and and have predictable effects and and desirable outcomes with with you know, minimal side effects and uh, and and the reason for that is is, is you know their origins are in organic chemistry but but they're being created in software um, and, and that just allows us to be to be much more clinical about about how we do this um, so when I meet a startup that, that's that's able to teach me something about about the world that I didn't understand um, I find that to, to be you know really really um, inspiring work so I learn from every every, every startup founder that that, um, that that I work with um, the I guess the the people along the way there's there's so many and I don't want to leave any out um, but actually one of your previous guests uh, Rachel Newman um, we've only spent a little bit of time together but she's really taught me a lot about how to measure um, customer satisfaction and, and and how to do a better job of understanding um, the relationship that we truly have with customer over the years um, there's um, uh, a guy. Um, who so the first employee at Yahoo in Australia um, is a fellow Tony Four, and um, Tony's a, um, a director of boards um, and, and chairman of, of boards these days. Um, I don't know how easy it is to get a coffee with him, but um, but he is a very wise and and uh, and influential individual, and uh, he has um, just a very global scope, which has helped me understand um, many times. The, the impact of, of the work that I might be doing and how I can um, um, 
really see the, the the growth path for myself and for my business going forward in, in a new way. Um, another person that's been really helpful to me along this journey is, is you know, I'm working on, on raising a, um, a, a, a pre-seed stage venture fund at the moment, MA Adventures, um, with Elaine Stead and, and Emily Rich, and, and they're both exceptional individuals. Um, and... Um, Emily's been incredible. She's she's a, a millennial. She's a, a software engineer. Um, she holds a very serious, uh, um, senior position uh, within Microsoft in their in their scale ups programs, and uh, she's also um, a well respected um, um, expert in machine vision and uh, machine learning. And uh, it's been incredible to to uh, watch and and learn from her uh, because the software engineers I I managed. Um, you know, that was back, you know, I stopped doing that around about 2004, 2005. Um, since then, most, most of the time I spend, I spend with, um, CEOs and, and, uh, and founders and, uh, um, and software engineering has, has moved on so far so much in, in that period of time. And, uh, and she's part of that new generation. Um, it's been incredible to work from her. So she's, she's, she's available to, to, to founders and, and um, technical co-founders out there. Um, if you can find her at Microsoft for Startups, um, she's, a, she's a hugely valuable source of advice and connections. I like your point on, on Silo. I actually had um, Josh Eishman join me on the podcast for episode 60 and he talked about Silo and his journey to that business and a fascinating business. So encourage listeners to definitely check out that episode if they want to learn more about Josh and, and Silo. You talked, Alan, about M8 Ventures and then raising your fund there. Can you take us inside some of the conversations there? I'm personally very curious. I've obviously never done it, and I think a lot of listeners might not be aware of the process. It almost seems like a secret world sometimes where these LP conversations and raising a fund for a fund is something that's it's quite unknown, particularly in Australia. Like we hear of the big VC funds, but I think increasingly you're seeing angel investors like yourself formalizing the relationship into a fund what does that look like in practice can you take us inside some of the conversations like what are the questions you get asked by prospective lps and what's your focus there yeah um so you know my first experience of, of vc from the inside so i'd been part of vc backed i'd been a co-founder or an employee in, in vc backed startups for, for about a decade but but my first experience of being on the other side of the table was as an lp was as an investor in in blackbird ventures first fund the 2012 fund the famous 2012 fund and mm. um and, and because nick and ricky were were just getting started with with raising their first venture fund it was possible to to see uh, you know a bit more of the internal goings on of, of of how blackbird came together than than it would be now you know because it was a skeleton crew trying to get a bunch of things done and Sometimes they had to take two steps forward in order to take three steps back. Um, so it was it was um, a, a good time to to see a little bit about how um, how the cake gets baked um, in the early days. Uh, another thing that the Blackbird Ventures taught me was 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 the value of, of true diversification. So I was an active getting started as that as an active angel investor around about that time. Had a few investments in play and, and thought I knew what what I was doing and what I was looking for. And um, honestly, the, the first few investments that the that Blackbird made with my money, um, I didn't entirely agree with. And uh, and uh, I remember you know, telling Nicky um, that um, I, w- I was pretty confident that I was right and he was wrong and would he please stop investing in companies that, that I wouldn't back myself. 
of course, time has, has proven that that he was right and I was wrong. Um, Blackbird's 2012 fund may go down as being one of the most successful in the history of tech venture capital, full stop, worldwide. Um, so clearly, yeah. I was I was conclusively wrong. Um, but what I learned from that experience is is that nobody's right all of the time, and uh, and and you can say I'm going to I'm going to diversify as an angel investor and 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 uh, say I'm I'm going to develop a portfolio of twenty companies. Um, and that's great, but what that means is is that you've now got 20, invest, 20 investments using an investment hypothesis which you've developed yourself. So although it's a layer of diversification, you probably still have invested in a bunch of pretty similar companies and pretty similar industries, and they're companies that you think that you understand um, that will become successful. And so I think that the second order of diversification that comes through investing in, in a fund managed by somebody else um, is is that they're going to invest in some things that, that you wouldn't have done, that you wouldn't agree with, that you wouldn't back, um, and, and that's basically what what my first investment in, in Blackbird taught me. You know, so since then I've I've developed much more faith in Nick and Ricky and people like Nick Crocker and Sam Wong to do a, um, a fantastic job with my money. And, and as I get a bit more capital, I'll, I'll be looking forward to investing more in, in, in some of the other venture funds that are out there. Um, and people might say, well, you know, why would you do that? If, if, if you're raising your own venture fund as MA Ventures, surely you'd want to put all of your eggs in that in that one basket um, if you know what you're doing as a VC. And, and the truth is, everybody who's in VC who's telling you that they know what they're doing is going to be wrong some of the time. And for a diversification, mm-hmm. it just makes sense to have a few of your eggs in a couple of other baskets. Um, so that's... That's a lot of what I need to say to to potential LPs and, and VC or, or people who wouldn't ever consider at this stage being um, an LP and a, and a VC fund. You're probably going to set out as an angel investor to develop a portfolio of companies that will all be pretty much around the same investment hypothesis, which you feel that you understand and feel safe with. And the problem with that is it's it's a it's a it's a first level diversification. It's insufficient diversification in that portfolio, and you should probably place some money with some other people. Now, as the cost of, of um, managing investor relationships and, and, and compliance and legal obligations comes down and down, you know, I think it, it probably halves every five years of, over the past 15, 20 years. Um, I think over time, it's getting more and more accessible um, and, and uh, minimum check sizes will, will come down and down. So that fairly soon, there won't be very much difference between investing as an angel investor, investing through a syndicate, or investing through a venture fund. I, I do think we'll, we'll, we'll see here in Australia, um, some funds will start using blockchain-based technologies to manage those relationships um, and, uh, and those cap tables. Um, and, and so I think you know, we may see um, pressure on, on management fees, um, on, on carry, on, on uh, GP carry. Um, and, and so I think there'll be opportunities for, for many more investors to, to get involved. Um, so if if there's going to be a lot of competition from a lot of different funds and, and a lot of opportunities to invest in an LP, a lot of people are going to pile into it. So I figure, you know, why not get out ahead of, of the pack? You know, why not learn the hard lessons early before everybody else jumps in so that um, when it's a, a much, much bigger playing field, you're one of the more experienced players on the field. You know, you're going to be less liable to be um, sucked in by by whatever is trending at the time. And more likely to understand a bit more about about you know what you're doing and who to do it with. Um, so that's that's broadly speaking, you know, my pitch to potential investors in, in any fund right now. If you're 
angel investor curious, I think you should also be LP curious as well. I think you should be taking the first steps to learn about how venture funds work and, and why it's probably a good idea for you to seek some of that second order diversification too. Yeah, that diversification point, I think, is a really important point that sometimes people can forget about because you go so headfirst into angel investing. Last question, Alan, before we go into final sprint. I asked you at the start of the conversation about success at 16 and and you talked about that perspective there. Now, many years later, given the amount of things you've done and you do, do you feel successful or do you still have a lot of things in the bank that you want to achieve? <laughs> I, I feel the same perpetual imposter syndrome as everybody else. Um, <laughs> there's, there's not a single podcast interview that I spend, you know, not shitting myself um, with fear um, that I get caught out that everybody who's listening to me is going to go, ah, that Alan Jones, he doesn't know <laughs> what he's talking about. He's making up as he goes along. Legend of his own lunchtime. Um, and, uh, and I think that's, you know, a perpetual state of, of being exposed to the frontiers of, of what's coming next in the world, you know, where, where tech startups play, where tech startup people play, um, we're inventing what the world's going to look like in five or 10 years time. And none of us really know. A lot of us have, have gut feels, a lot of us have partial data. Uh, but my, my, my pinned tweet on my Twitter profile is there's only two kinds of people in startups. One, the sorts of people who are comfortable making decisions based on partial data. And there's no two, <laughs> right? Because those are the only people that are successful in, in tech startups, the people who feel comfortable making a gut decision based on partial data. And, uh, and always being in that state um, means that we're always, you know, a little bit anxious that we might be wrong. Um, and we have all of us um, a lot at stake in the outcome. Um, I can't imagine doing anything else uh, with, with my life. Um, it's been a very long and, and raggedy journey to get to this point, um, but it's pretty cool to be doing your life's work finally um, at a uh, most interesting time in the world. We've got a few minutes left, Alan, so I'd love to finish with some rapid fire questions. Is there one investment you've made that you consider the best in your life, non-financial? Non-financial investment. Yeah, um, there's a... There's a um, there's a foundation called the Pathways Foundation that runs um, rites of passage programs for um, young men and young women, um, young boys and young girls, and 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 their mothers and fathers. And uh, it's based around the premise. There are a number of organisations. This is a you know a bit of a movement that um, that, that in Western society um, we've forgotten about the importance of a rite of passage, about a transition into into adulthood, um, and and that is perhaps one of the reasons why there are so many people in their 30s and 40s who are still um, adolescent in, in so many ways, um, still mostly eating through meal delivery services and spending too much time playing PlayStation and Xbox and not really forming lasting <laughs> relationships and, and not really moving ahead with their lives. Um, and, and we think that's that's because there's, there's no real meaningful rite of passage. Um, so Pathways Foundation is something I got involved with um, uh, I guess about uh, 15 years ago, um, when 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 my son was was just a young fella, and uh, and I came on board um, to actually advise them on some digital strategy stuff, and and then got really interested in in, in the work that they were doing. So my son and I went went through that that program, and um, and uh, it, it's it's been really significant. I, I can see how um, uh, mother daughter 
father-son relationships can can go off the rails uh, when when there's no guide when when there's the, when you're just making up as you go along and it's certainly not something that can just be left to to organically go whatever direction it likes um, that's that's where those relationships break down and it can take 20 30 years if if ever um, to to rebuild that relationship um, so the the time I spend with with pathways foundation um, and, and and the money that I invest in and keep helping keep that program going is, is, is really important to me it, it helps a couple of hundred people in a non-pandemic lockdown year um, build a better relationship with with their kid as their kid makes the transition into adulthood and uh, and there's there's no more important thing for for the for the future of the world than than creating you know fully formed functional, responsible um, adults ready to, to, to play a, um, a meaningful role in society rather than just kick back and, and uh, consume. Last question, Alan. We've got a few minutes left. In my homework leading up to this episode, I noticed you were episode 45 on the 20VC podcast with Harry Stebbings, which is quite early in his journey. He's now down over 800 episodes. How did that happen? Like, how did you get on his podcast in those early days? <laughs> um, I, had to, I had to pull over to the side of the road in my car when Harry and I did that interview. Um, <laughs> so it's one of the lowest quality um, audio interviews in, in, in the 20 Minutes VC podcast um, history. Mm. Look, I, I think um, Harry was was um, introduced to me through through um, somebody else that he had interviewed. That was all. He was he was looking to to broaden his um, uh, his, his audience outside of outside of the UK. He was looking for people that that um, might be involved in VC and angel investing outside of the UK. And uh, I guess I was probably one of the two or three people he was first introduced to who, who said yes. Um, I, I think um, you know, Julie Trell um, is out there in, in startup land, and, and she, you know, one of the many things that she teaches um, is, is the, uh, the improv skill of, of, of saying yes and. You know, so when somebody approaches you with an opportunity to um, be interviewed for, for a podcast, um, you, should, you should never say no. Um, you should always say yes and, right? So if no, because I can't do it today, or no, I've got a, a really busy week this week, um, is, is, is shutting down an opportunity, is, is minimizing your exposure to luck. You know, luck can't hit you unless you expose enough surface area for luck to hit. So um, by, you know, by doubling down and focusing on what you're doing and saying no to opportunities, you're, you're missing out on, on, on that luck stuff. So if you take Julie's um, improv uh, approach and say, yes, and I need to move it just half an hour earlier so that we can record it um, and time frame so I can do my pitch workshop at 10, um, then, then you're, you're maximizing your exposure to luck. So frankly, I, um, I, I had maybe like 10 minutes to find out who Harry Stebbings was before the the, the podcast interview um, and I was very poorly prepared for that. So it was just one of those happenstance um, opportunities. I would certainly never get on 20 minute VC today. Um, that, that brand has grown, <laughs> but look, there's, you know, there's a huge lesson there for, for, for him, you know, for all of us, like we said at the beginning of this, of this interview today, you know, find an opportunity to establish yourself um, um, as a brand mm -hmm. by bringing people together, whether it's listeners on a podcast or, or readers on a, on a sub stack or um, um, you know, convening and then hosting a, a panel of experts on a topic on a Friday night in your local co-working space. Get started now. These things pay recurring returns over time, and that, that interest compounds. Um, Harry was just a scruffy twenty-one-year-old kid when he started that thing. Now he's one of the biggest forces in in, in tech VC in the world. Um, learn from Harry and, and get started tomorrow. 
Mm, no, a great note to end on, Alan. That's the finish line, unfortunately. We've run out of time, but so glad we could finally do this. And thanks again for joining me. Thank you so much, man. I really enjoyed it. There you have it. I hope you took away some actual insights and learnings from this conversation to apply to your life and be 1% better. And to stay up to date on all upcoming episodes, just subscribe or follow us on your podcast app and on LinkedIn or Instagram.